Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, episode 72. Uh, Wishing you all a very happy new year. Today's the 5th of January. Hope you've had a nice uh, break and uh, you don't feel too stressed out by the prospect of getting back to work. I must admit that it was nice to uh, get the kids back to school, get some uh, peace and quiet, not having to continually think about refereeing uh, arguments over iPads or um, what film uh, they should be watching on Netflix and all of that. Uh, The deep joys of being stuck indoors on very short, dark days in winter. So You may have noticed that uh, I've managed to get the whole of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot book onto the podcast in audiobook format. Uh, Finished that off over the Christmas New Year period, thank God, because it was was, um, very, very time consuming. And um, yeah, lots of people have asked me over a long period of time, uh, are you doing an audiobook? The answer to that was always going to be yes, but the publishers weren't going to do it so they basically gave me permission to do it um, and revoked any kind of rights that they would have over the audiobook so so what I've done is I've recorded every chapter and uh, put each individual chapter on the podcast which uh, if you want to listen to them I can imagine that's going to be a bit tedious having to sort of um, find the next chapter as opposed to a traditional audiobook which you just sort of listen to in a oneer um i mean it sort of takes up where you left off the last time so for those who prefer to consume their audiobooks in that way i've also uploaded it to audible uh, and it'll be available there uh hopefully in about the next week so i put it on about three or four days ago it said it usually takes about 10 working days before the whole thing goes live so fingers crossed it should be available there obviously you need to pay for that on audible but um, yeah, for those who just want to listen to it in a one that's definitely the better option, I suppose. Uh, before we get into the interview this week, which is an interview uh, I did before Christmas with uh, Matt Johnson, who is a, a very, very nice chap, uh, ex-police officer and an author of a number of different books that you'll hear about when we chat. But before we get into that uh, conversation, just a couple of things from police news in the last sort of week or 10 days or so. A um, couple of interesting things about the police recruitment operation uplift program and various things that were, are, are going on to make that uh, probably less successful than everybody uh, in senior ranks in the police as well as the Home Office would, would want. There was a report in the I newspaper, I think it was also in the Guardian, on the 30th of December, talking about how 
police recruits. And the, the headline is, police recruits quit Johnson's hiring scheme in droves. Uh, they've done a freedom of information request. And the results of the FOI requests show that uh, nearly 2,000 of the recruits that were hired under the Operation Uplift program have already resigned. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, so far, only 15,000 have been recruited. Uh, the cutoff is March, I believe, end of March this year. So I'm assuming that means the funding will then run out because I know what, how these things work is that you know, once the funding runs out, the funding runs out and that's that. So uh, if only 15,000 have been recruited and best part of 2,000 have resigned already, then uh, they've got a long, long way to go, haven't they? But the interesting point for me was when you actually read that article, only um, 24 of the 43 forces in England Wales had actually responded to the FOI request, meaning that 19 forces um, didn't supply data. So I, and one of those forces was the Met. So obviously by far the biggest force in the country. So I would guess that that number of 1800 is probably double that. Um, I'd love to know what the true number actually is. So. It's been a massive, uh, they've gone on, on a massive mountain to climb to, to even get anywhere near that 20,000. And as, as we've talked about before, uh, the, the actual number that needed to be recruited to even sort of get back to 2010 levels, once you factor in natural wastage, uh, resignations, uh, sickness, people getting sacked, all of that stuff, the actual number was more like fifty-five thousand. So, so yeah, another one. Another one I noticed uh, the other day, which was in the Daily Express, was that uh, Western Australia police put out a, an advert uh, for British police officers to come and work in Australia back in, I believe, October of last year, and seven hundred British police officers have applied to work in Australia. So yeah, so then so I suppose uh, the net of all of that is that the uh, staffing issues for all of the reasons that we've talked about, you know, poor pay, uh, low morale, um, poor supervision, uh, poor leadership, um, feeling un unloved and uh, doing a thankless job. All of these things are conspiring now to literally see people leaving the organization in very, very large numbers, which is very sad when you consider that um, something like um you know going back to about 2011 12 i think only something like 18 percent of the police workforce would leave before their 30-year contracted um career whereas now apparently that number is about 42 percent anyway on that cheery note let's get into the conversation with matt <laughs> Morning, Matt. Good morning. <laughs> How are you? Hey, you look like me. You've wrapped up warm and turned the down. <laughs> oh, Mitt, I've just come in from uh, walking the dogs. Oh, my God. It's seriously, it's minus seven or eight or something. And uh, it's very yeah, beautiful. Absolutely yeah, stun stunning. Are you, in, are you in Wales? 
Yeah, yeah, southeast corner of Wales, minus seven here, walking the dogs as well. Oh, bloody hell. I know, we're not used to it. I, I thought, well, the thing is, it was flipping boiling during the summer, wasn't it? And now it's flipping freezing. It's like, what's going on? <laughs> it's a... It's a bit. It's a bit of a shock. I mean, last year, uh, I think I could count on on one hand the number of frosts we had. Yeah. And we didn't. We haven't had any snow for probably two or three years. Southeast, um, let me think. So that's sort of is that sort of Carmarthenshire kind of we're, area? We're we're in inland, sort of on the English border. All oh, right. Okay. And so we're, we're we're quite a protected environment here, and it's quite low as well. So although we look around at Places like the Brecon Beacons and the Black Mountains. Yeah. I did a big cycle ride um, a couple of years ago with a mate of mine. We were training for our ride down to the, the Mediterranean. And uh, on day one, we rode from near Warwick to Sirencester, which wasn't too bad because it, wasn't, it was, wasn't too many hills. But then the next day, we rode from Sirencester over uh, the Severn, which is really interesting, actually, going across the Severn Bridge. It's... Um, it's really unbelievable piece of um, civil engineering, isn't it? Engineering, yeah. Oh my god! So then we rode up to through Chepstow and up through the Forest of Dean. That's a funny old place, isn't it? Apologies to anybody who comes from the Forest of Dean, but yeah. there's a lot of people with six fingers there, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, that, that is the reputable. <laughs> Listen, you've got this recording. I can't say it. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> It's a it's funny really, old place. I was the expecting. Far, the forest does have a reputation. We, stopped, we stopped in this place, I won't name it, but to, to grab a coffee and sort of rest our legs for a bit. And um, I'll tell you, I was waiting for a bloke with a banjo to come out and start playing. It was. The, the Y Valley route, that would have been your winner. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Very, it's very picturesque. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people that live in the forest around Colford and places like that. Yeah, yeah, and, no, it's um, a funny, funny old place. God only knows what goes on up there, but uh, and they, there you go. Recommend. People that live like <laughs> in Monmouthshire on the outskirts of the forest, <laughs> that, that kind of joke is quite often levelled at oh, really? the forest. <laughs> I don't think it's on its own, is it? To be fair, there's a few other places like that around the country. But uh, listen, my friend, it's really brilliant to have you on the podcast. So, um, what kind of audience have you got for it now, Ian? Well, I'm getting about 15,000 downloads wow, a month at the moment. that's amazing. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did. I got some statistic through the other day from one of these kind of podcast monitoring sites saying you're in the top 2% globally. But then when you actually look at the number of podcasts there are, there are in, the, um, in the world, it's something like, oh, my God, it's like, hundreds of millions you know what i mean really? so yeah 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 so you know you and initially you sort of think oh god that's good isn't it and it is good you know don't get me wrong yeah. i'm very pleased with that i'll have that top two percent but um but then when you look at the the number of, of podcasts all right there you realize that it's a statistical uh blip but um but listen um we are recording um so uh i, I tend to you know just keep all this stuff in because it's quite funny really um Okay, yeah, so podcasts. Have, you, have, you listened to, have you listened to Alfie Moore's podcasts? I haven't listened to podcasts. I listened to uh, his BBC or Radio Sounds. 4. It's on BBC Sounds. Series, yeah, very funny. He's the funny, man, isn't he? The man is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if he's gone. I'll tell you what, he'd be a great person to get on the podcast, wouldn't he? 
yeah, I would go for it definitely. Yeah. I need to, I need to try and track him down, don't I? Yeah. But the problem with these celebs is that he's, I mean, he's not a celeb, is he? But he's you not. know, he's a, he's... I've spoken to him, and I saw him at the Edinburgh Fringe. Oh, did you? Totally, totally grounded, very normal. Amazed that he can make people laugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, the problem is you got to get past the bloody agents and all that shit, don't yeah. you? You know. Oh, yeah. you can you can contact him through Twitter. <clears throat> oh no, I don't. That's how I speak to him. I've I've been Twitter off. I was just fed up with it. It's just the the it's just a, it's just a, an absolute hell hole of 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 stupidity and nastiness, isn't it? But uh, not that you're stupid and nasty. But you know, there's a lot of stupidity out there, isn't there? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'll do, Ian. I'll do you a favour because I'm in touch with him through Twitter. I will um, send him a message for, and ask him for an email that he can contact you on, or you yes. can contact him. I'll yeah, start. yeah, that'd be brilliant. That'd be yeah, brilliant. And, uh, yeah, excellent. Right. Well, anyway, let's get into the podcast then. So, just for the benefit of people listening, then just introduce yourself. And uh, I mean, I know who you are, but uh, other people won't. Well, I'm sure lots of people will because they'll rec- instantly recognise uh, your books. I'm sure, but. So yeah, if oh, you want to, oh, God, how, how, how do I introduce myself? Um, <laughs> well, name's Matt Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I describe myself Ian as an accidental author. All right, okay. Um, in that, I'd never planned to be a writer. Never intended to be a writer. I was like yourself, career policeman. Thoroughly mm-hmm. enjoyed doing it. Um, and same as you, you came out early. Um, didn't realise what I was going to do. Yeah. And I came out early because I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Um, complex PTSD, they called it, where they couldn't mm-hmm. actually pin the specific incident down because, as, as you know, we're, we're all throughout our careers exposed to all kinds of things. And yeah. actually these things take a toll on you. And eventually with me, um, it, it manifested itself in um, symptoms, which I thought were a heart attack, but was actually an anxiety attack. Uh, and other things like flashbacks and, and um, mm. nightmares and dreams and all things like that. Anyway, eventually it resulted in me getting cast. Okay. And how many years did you do it? 21. Before, 21. Okay, 21 right. years, yeah. And you've been so, in the army before that, haven't you? That's right. I did three years as a short service commission as well with the Royal Signal. So, right. Okay. Before, um, before I went in the army. So that, that resulted in me in getting a, a little bit of ribbing when I first arrived as a PC at the Street Police Station, where I was known as Rupert. Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. at, least you, at least you knew how to use the radios, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but military RT procedure <laughs> and met RT procedure, I had, to, I had to learn the new techniques like twanging, you know, that wasn't a oh, recognised yeah. technique when I. Oh was, yeah. So uh, for for people for people listening who don't understand what that is, and it's probably a peculiarly met thing, but it's funny because back in the day we had store no radios, didn't we? Personal radios, and on the back of the radios, a handset that had a little metal clip that attached to, to your tunic, didn't it? Oh, and uh, and if somebody said something that really been stupid across the <laughs> airways, yeah. or if uh, the inspector came up and gave someone a bollocking or something like that, um, some someone, in fact, usually more than one person, would start twanging their <laughs> clip on the back of the radio with the uh, you know with the transmit button pressed down, and everybody used to giggle, didn't they? Because it, right. bas- yeah. it was basically a way of saying you're a complete dick without saying you're yeah. a complete dick, doesn't it? Yeah, the way of taking the piss with it anonymously. <laughs> because <laughs> you never knew who it was <laughs> but 
anyway, after I was cast, I did counselling. Um, and um, part of the counselling involved creative writing therapy. Um, and that creative writing therapy had me doing homework, writing st stuff about material, about um, life experiences, symptoms, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and one day this counsellor said to me, um, she really liked the way I write, had mm -hmm. I ever considered writing a book? And I laughed. Mm -hmm. uh, this was back in 2001. I, I laughed, it's a ridiculous idea, you know, crazy. Um, used to write in evidence, used to write in reports. Um, but the idea of writing a book, no, because I thought, I thought, and what she was pointing at was writing some form of art autobiography. And I said, realistically speaking, I said, um, I'm an inspector working at Stoke Newington in North London. Yeah, I've been exposed to a lot of things. Yes, I've had a lot of interesting experiences, but um, I don't really think anybody would be interested in, in reading it. So I forgot about the idea. Mm -hmm. And then if you fast forward like uh, about 10 or 12 years, I'd moved to South Wales um, and um, my marriage collapsed, mm. ended up getting divorced, ended up living on my own in a rented property out here in Monmouthshire um, mm. and mid-50s and thinking to myself, right, what the heck am I going to do with my life now? Too young to retire, too, too old <laughs> to mm. be told what to do, yeah. <laughs> take yeah, on yeah. a new job. Yeah. So um, my brother said to me, he said, why don't you... Um, have a look at what that counsellor said, you know, and try writing a book and, and see. Um, and I thought, well, I'll have a go. How hard can it be? Yeah. Well, as you know, because mm. you've done one. It's really hard. It's, it's <laughs> very hard. Um, but I decided I was going to write, rather than write a, a non-fiction autobiographical account, I was going to set a, a, a series of my experiences and uh, memories um, to fiction uh, and then weave a plot into it. Um, so I, I sat at the computer, wrote this story, um, thought, well, yeah, I'm quite pleased with that, show it as you do to friends and relatives. And they said, oh, yeah, it's a great story, lovely, because people do tend to do that. Yeah. And, and I sent it off to publishers and agents and got the standard responses of thanks, but no thanks. It's not yeah, something yeah. we're interested in. So I sort of thought, oh, well, that was an idea which has crashed and burned. Uh, again, my brother came to my rescue and he, he told me about the Kindle Direct Publishing system. At the mm -hmm. So I self-published it using the Amazon Kindle and KDP system. Um, and it had been up on Kindle for about, I think, 10 or 12 weeks. And it was selling in good numbers. And I was making a little bit of pocket money and it was getting some good feedback. And it was the kind of stuff that I wanted to write about and the message that I tried to get across yeah. about the reality of policing and how it yeah. affects these families and things like that yeah. was getting um, recognized by the people who were writing reviews about it. And then a very interesting thing happened because um, the book had a military theme yeah, uh, because it's about a soldier who becomes a policeman uh, mm -hmm. and how his past come back comes back to haunt him. Mm -hmm. uh, and it became quite popular with um, soldiers who were going out on um, tours to Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, and this one particular RAF uh, Chinook uh, loadmaster was out in Iraq reading my book on his Kindle. Right, um, and. He was sat there literally in the, in the shade underneath this Chinook helicopter when a journalist walked past him who was writing a story, a book, about the pilot of that aircraft, um, yeah. a, a pilot by the name of Frenchie Duncan, 
who'd won the Distinguished Flying Cross. An incredible story. Hmm. Um, when he um, walked past this, this loadmaster, the journalist asked him what he was reading. They told him it was his book called Wicked Game by this guy called Matt Johnson. The journalist obviously had never heard of me, never heard of the book. Um, and he asked the lady if it was any good. And the lady said, well, it's a pretty good book. He said, there's a really interesting backstory about him. And he told him my backstory about wow. how I'd been, um, when I was a PC, one of the officers who was present when WPC Yvonne Fletcher was shot. Right. Now, as would happen, this, this journalist, a chap called Anthony Lovelace, before he'd become a journalist, did um, a year or two as a policeman. Oh, okay. He was posted to West End Central Police Station. Right. Uh, and he was posted there in 1985. Oh, it's not funny. It's like the planets spot. lining up, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and he'd been, he knew the story of Yvonne intimately. He'd been to the memorial in St. James's Square. Uh, and that aroused his curiosity. Mm. So he got, um, when he came home, he... Uh, um, downloaded my book he read it himself he liked it he got in touch with his literary agent uh, and the next thing I know is I got a an email inviting me up to London to meet this literary agent with a view to considering whether they were going to represent me all right brilliant and, and it was like um, a half day interview so that first book was wicked game wasn't it that's right yeah. and Luckily, I passed the interview um, and was it, the idea that they would then take on wicked game or any subsequent book? Exactly, exactly. So they, they they signed me up. They they found me a traditional publisher, right? Um, and and the book was traditionally published. And okay, uh, it did Brilliant. it did amazingly well. It got uh, what was it? Not two thousand sixteen. It was shortlisted for a Crime Writers Association Dagger Award, which was oh. just amazing. It sold Brilliant. in the tens of thousands. It was just just incredible. Wow. Um, and it became the highest rated debut novel on on Amazon that year. Brilliant. Um, and the culmination was that the, the publishers asked me to write two more. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, I did a trilogy. I did Deadly Game and then End Game. Um, and then in 2018, the icing on the cake was that WH Smith did a reader poll mm -hmm. uh, to ask people who bought books from them um, who they considered to be the best crime writers ever. Right. Um, now, inevitably, the, the, the names at the very top of the list were the likes of Peter James, who was first, and Val mm -hmm. McDermott, Ian Rankin, James Connolly. Yeah. Um, Lee Child was up there, way up there. And number yeah. 21 was yeah. Arthur Conan Doyle. Number 22 <laughs> was me. Oh, wow. <laughs> on this list. Now, this was just, what? Brilliant. Now, I've only been on three years. Crazy. It's oh, crazy. Brilliant. Wow. Well done, you. That's that, was a, that, was the, that was the real. Wow, that was um, yeah, massively. After that, yeah. of course, the books sold uh, in good numbers. Uh, yeah, which is yeah, just brilliant. Great. And uh, and I mean, I mean, I said people said to me, um, "Oh yeah, how's your book doing? I bet you've made loads of money from it." And I was like, "No, I mean, it's doing all right, but you know, you don't, you really, you don't write books to make money unless you're, no. you know, one of the, unless you're, uh, you know, one of the sort of people who you've just uh, named." Um, very few people make much money from writing books. There, there um, is the the top of the Premier League mm -hmm. of, should we say, crime writers. Yeah, um, writers in all genres, really. Mm. The likes of the, the names I mentioned, and they they earn a good living 
from, mm. from writing. Below that, um, the average earnings for um, an author is £7,000 a year. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I'm slightly above the average, but mm. slightly. Yeah, I you definitely don't do it. I certainly couldn't and... make a living at it. Yeah, but um, massively it, it, satisfying, I would imagine. Hugely it's, satisfying. It's very satisfying, and it's very it's great to to interrelate and react and meet all, uh, other authors, meet writers, meet readers, mm, yeah. events and things like that. Do you go it's to lot, do you go to a lot of events and things like that? Sort of promotional. Uh, not a great deal. No, not a great deal. Um, in the beginning, I did, um, but I, I confess I found them rather samey. Mm, um, mm. Talking about the same things, the same people. Um, right, yeah, and um, I think the, the shine um wore off them a bit. I haven't done an event now for about two years, and I think mm. probably I'm looking forward mm. to getting back to it, but yeah, but um, yeah, I've got some, I've thing. got, I've had so many flipping ideas about a uh, you know, a, a book of fiction, uh, I wouldn't even call it a grand, grandly call it a novel, but certainly a book, a work, a work of fiction. I've got two or three ideas that I've had rattling around in my head for quite the last couple of years but um it's such a it just feels so overwhelming sometimes you know um to sit because i know how much work goes into writing a book and uh, writing a work a book of non-fiction i find relatively straightforward i mean it's a lot of work but it's mm. enjoyable and as you're talking about you're basically telling a story and mm. the story is your story and it's easy to tell your story isn't it because you're not making anything up you're just you just have to make sure that it's written in a way that is engaging and people want to read. But writing a work of um, fiction feels to me just to be a bit overwhelming. You just think, oh, my God, you literally it's, it's are starting with a blank canvas, aren't you? Yeah, and it's interesting to hear, to hear you say this because I, I had this exact same conversation with John Sutherland. Really? Um, when John, John and I have been friends for many years, um, when John was writing his blog, I, I used to chat to him on the phone and, and over, I don't know, I don't think we did see him as it those days. Um, and I would say to him, do you know, um, your blog is so good. You're, you're a natural writer. You should write a book. Mm. <laughs> and I even offered at the time to get my agent to represent him. And, and um, they had some discussions, but I don't think they could come to a deal. Uh, and at the time, uh, I was saying, come on, John, you should write a book, write a book, write a book. <clears throat> and as we know, he, he did mm. um and it was a very good book blue um and mm. uh, uh, yeah really yeah, super. did really really well um and what, what after he'd done this his second one um he got in touch with me and he said um i wonder if i could pick your brains because <laughs> <laughs> i'm thinking of doing um a, a fiction book writing mm. a storybook so um what i did was i said well, well that's a great idea i said but you realise is, is that you, there is a, a a method in writing fiction, but the, the biggest biggest hurdle is starting. Um, mm. When when a lot of people who write fiction think, "Oh, I couldn't do it," because they, there's a, there's a natural inclination to think, "When I'm going to tell a, a story of fiction, I'm going to write the book that people are going to read. So therefore, I'm going to start at the beginning, work my way through to the middle." and end at the end but in truth that's not how you write fiction or not how you should write fiction mm. with fiction you just write so if, if you're going to um start at the beginning i can promise you that by the time that book is finished and edited your beginning will not be the beginning 
Right. It will have changed. It will have evolved. The, the, the story will have reached a point where you have come up with a better idea for a beginning or something right. has happened during the course of the plot, which has yeah. created a change, which makes a beginning. So you should never think to yourself, I've got to start at the beginning of my story. You just start thinking, right, well, I've got a premise. I've got an idea. I'll just write that. And then mm. gradually, gradually, over the course of weeks and months, the story will evolve and you chop and change things. You move the timelines of things and change yeah. chapters around and things like that. Yeah. And eventually um, you polish it to the point where it, it it runs smoothly. Yeah, and I think that's probably the thing that feels so overwhelming is that you sort of look at, I mean, I sort of tried to whiteboard. I've got the biggest whiteboard in the world in the office here which uh, my son is doing a PhD at the moment. He's got whiteboard envy. He comes in and says, oh, uh, I said, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, leave it in, I'll, leave, I'll leave it for you in my will if you want. Okay, how's that? Um, but I tried to whiteboard the timeline and the sort of story and it just became, it just began to feel so overwhelming. And I think you, you're absolutely right. And the advice, the advice I give anybody about wanting to write a book, any book, um, is just start writing. Just start writing. It just start um, don't don't kind of um you know it's that old thing about the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step and you know the only way to eat an elephant is one bit at a time and all of that because because if you if, i think if you overthink it um you will just give up give up before you've even so, started you know well I'm, I'm i'm pleased to say you know when having had that conversation with john he wrote siege mm. which is out now which is bloody yeah. excellent yeah it's doing um, really well isn't it and and it's and it's doing well and, but it it he made that first step Rather yeah. than and with having had that uncertainty that he said, I said, just just go for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I would yeah. say the same to you, Ian. Just yeah. do it. Yeah. And don't and don't write it for an audience. And I said, I said this to John as well. Don't write it for an audience. Write it for the kids. Yeah. Write I'm it. Writing, for I, I think you write. I think you write the book that you would want to read yourself. Yeah. Write you the know? book you want to read and write it for your family. Write it to to entertain them so that they can have a look at it. And then if it so happens that you produce something that a wider readership enjoys as well. Yeah, that that's wonderful. Yeah, but you can't it's a really tricky yourself. one, isn't it? It's a bit like that New Year's resolution, isn't it? You think, right, this year I'm going to go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to run a marathon. And I'm going to get um, become uh, my super healthy. And I think you just try and you just become overwhelmed by you know the the enormity of what it is that you. Uh, think you're going to do and actually then reality bites and you know your busy life gets in the way and all of that stuff but I've got to say having spoken to you now about this I think I probably will you know I think I probably will I think I'll probably um rather than say I'm going to write a book I'm just going to start writing and squirrel stuff away in you know when I get the odd 20 minutes half an hour a couple of hours when you know in between everything else and just get it get something done and and then it hopefully then it will, you know, start like a like a bit of a snowball. Uh, we'll just get bigger and bigger, and you know, before you know it, you've got a book in your hands. You know, so that's right, exactly. And best tip I could possibly give you is 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 when you're out, particularly when you're out on your own for a walk with the dogs or something like that, is carry a digital recorder with you. Really, because mm. you'll be amazed when your brain is clear. And you're mm. not thinking about something, how something will pop into your mind, a plot idea or a, a way of, of, of driving the story forward. And because it's imaginary, because it's not real, mm. by the time you get home and you sat down in front of the keyboard, you think, oh, hell, 
what was the idea? Yeah. What was the detail of it? And and, and oh, Matt, Matt, I've got I've got to the age now where I have I have an amazing idea, and I've literally if I don't get, do something instantly, I've forgotten it in like fifteen seconds. For God's yeah. sake, that's you know? right. Because it's so it, because it's so abstract. Because it's not real. When when we write about a non-fiction, we're writing from memory. So these things are real and they're, they're ingrained in, in, in our subconscious. But when, when these things are like just a story you're just making up, it doesn't mm. plant so deeply. Yeah, um, yeah. And I've, I've, I keep um, a digital court recorder next to the bed mm. because sometimes in the early hours of the morning when you're half awake, half asleep, an idea will come to you. Mm. I guarantee you by the time you've woken up properly, you've forgotten it. It's a bit like a dream, isn't it? So and it's, it's so same. unbelievably vivid, isn't it? The yeah, instant you wake up, and then moment. five minutes later, you you have no idea what it was all about. What, what it was. Yeah. But listen, listen. Let's get into your police career. So, when did you? Uh, what year did you join uh, the police? Nineteen seventy-eight, November. Bloody, bloody hell! So uh, it was proper <laughs> life on Mars. I, 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 I look at it on my birth certificate sometimes, and I think there must be some mistake. <laughs> I, sit, I sit with my pal in the pub, and over a pint, I'm saying. How can it be that we're in our pension age? You know, where, mm. where did the years go? I know, I know. So, so you came out of the army. Uh, what age were you when you came out of the army? Uh, Twenty-one. Twenty-one. Gosh, so you were really, you were a really young officer then, weren't you? Mm. I mean, that's mad, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I, I look at some photographs of of me from that age, and I can honestly tell you that if you were to look at me, I would not strike fear into the heart of many hardened <laughs> London criminals. <laughs> Oh, you were like what? Very, very green. I was it's, very green. It's it's stone dripping wet, were you? Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> well, no. I was always <laughs> even those days. I was about fourteen stone, I think. Right. Okay. Um, and then, and I think by the time I was about mid twenties, I was about fifteen stone, fifteen, fifteen and a half. So. Uh, okay. So where did you get posted first of all? Albany Street, Echo Delta, Sea oh. Relief. Yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to think. Uh, Albany Street. I'm a bit crap at that part of town. Near Camden, that's, Camden just, that that's way. Camden, south of Kentish Town, on the Euston Road, um, near near St Pancras Station. Not St. Right. Uh, Euston Station, sorry. And you'd uh, obviously, as a young, fresh-faced army officer, uh, it must have been quite a, a change for you to go from being. You know, obviously, I presumably you were second lieutenant or something. That's right, but, yeah. but but you were. You're obviously an officer, so you were in charge of of men, and uh, you know. But to go into an organisation and then be right back at the absolute bottom of the bottom of the bottom, how did that feel? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'll, I'll correct a misnomer there. As a subaltern, you're you're not in charge of anything, right? <laughs> you might have a pip on your shoulder, um, and you you might sometimes be addressed as sir. By, by, the, by the soldiers and NCOs, <laughs> the people in charge are very much the NCOs, very much. And as a sub young subaltern, you do very quickly learn that you don't do anything without checking with them first. Right. And in fact, you don't make any decision unless it's the one that they recommend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, God, correct that for subalterns being... So as, as, as for having command of a body of men, Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you were you were technically the head of that body of men, but you were you were not in charge. It's a change very much so too. To, to, it's a weird thing. It was it was a culture change, I think, more than more than a um mm. I'm a Londoner. I, I come from North London, Northwest London. So working in London was was not a I didn't have to adapt to to, to a new environment. And and the majority of of the, the the girls and boys I was working with at the time were also Londoners as well. 
Right. So, um, well, that, there was a real, real mixture. Uh, a lot of Scots, if I remember rightly. Um, so this is pre-Edmund Davis, I would imagine. Yeah, so yeah, I don't suppose. Yeah. So the pay. Edmund Davis be... was happening at about the time. Right. Like, so the pay, in. the pay up to that point was crap, wasn't it? Which is why they brought in the Edmund Davis changes, yeah, didn't they? Right. I think Edmund Davis down about the time I was at training school because I, I remember one of the persuasive factors was when I joined the police um, because when I came out of the army, a friend of mine was at. Um, Vine Street Police Station. And he'd been ex, he'd been in the Royal Marines, and he'd come out of the Royal Marines after a short, short service commission, and he'd gone to Vine Street. And we we were sat in a pub in in Harrow, where we're both from. Um, and he he, Phil Davenport, his name was. Um, Phil said to me, um, "Why don't you you join the Met?" <laughs> and again, that was another one I laughed at because. When we were boys, Phil, me, and a few others used to um, go to the uh, the roof of Woolworths in Rainers Lane, which had a flat roof with a little parapet wall. Mm. Uh, and late in the evening, one of us would run down to the plate glass windows of, of um, Woolworths, rattle the door, which would set the alarms off. Yeah. And then the cops would come up in their panda cars to check to see if it had broken into. And we would lean over the parapet walls and drop bags of water on them as they were checking the doors and then scarper and this was our this was our in our evening entertainment they never caught us thank god you know <laughs> uh, but um but this was our evening entertainment so of course when i related this i said i can't possibly join the police it's a crazy idea um and he showed me i was um as a second lieutenant i was taking 39 pounds a week in those days oh my god and he showed me his paycheck as a PC at Vine Street, and he was taking home twice as much as I was. Yeah, wow. As, as a as a PC at Vine Street, and and uh, I looked at his paycheck, and I, I remember I to this day I remember I said to him, "Yeah, I think I'll apply for that." Until I think something <laughs> I, better. I suddenly feel a very strong sense of public service. <laughs> and slash And I said to him, "Until I think of something better, that's what I'll do." Right. Um, so um, I joined, I applied on a bit of a whim, um, only ever intended to do it for a short time until I came up with a better idea. But like you do, you get drawn into it. Mm. It's bloody good fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Particularly, um, I would imagine in those days, you know, free pace. Oh, my God. What could possibly go wrong? You know? Well, I, I remember my, my first night shift when I when I rested a drunk uh, and I, I was told by the station officer, that um, I had to be at court the following morning at Clerkenwell Magistrates Court to present the case. Um, court off of nights would be four hours overtime plus travelling, minimum. And I was overtime. What's that then? You know, because there's a in the army you didn't get overtime. Yeah. Um, so I, I finished work at six, come back into court for nine o'clock, finish by ten, go home, go back to bed, and for doing one hour, one and a half hours work, I get. Four hours overtime plus the travelling. Yeah. You're up to laugh, I said. <laughs> Too good to be true. Yeah. You know, that, that was that was the way things so so you would present your court your court case off of nice because then you realize, well, hang on a minute, it's, it's quite a vested interest in arresting these people and get caught off of nice as overtime. I yeah. I got a I got a bug for nicking people. Uh, my first arrest on my, on my first night duty, a PC called John Bell. Uh, who was my parent constable, took me down to um, uh, St Pancras Way near King's Cross. And one thing you're taught as a probationer 
is that I think was it, it was the three P's you had to avoid. Mm. It was prisoners, property, and prostitutes. Prisoners, property, and prostitutes. That was it. Prisoners, property, and prostitutes. Avoid the three P's as, as a promoter, and you'll keep out of trouble. Prostitutes was the big one. Well, it was more, wasn't it? Wasn't it more a case of uh, not really avoiding? It was just more. Those were the things that were most likely to drop you in the shit, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. So, first arrest prostitute, soliciting for the purposes of prostitution. So, back to Albany Street. Because Albany Street was an operational police station in those days with cells and a station officer and in through the back door, read to this lady for soliciting for the purposes of prostitution sergeants. You've done what? (laughs) (laughs) Because I got the, what the hell do you think you're doing? And my parent constable got, what the hell are you doing? He's not supposed to be arresting prostitutes. Um, but that, so that was my first arrest. So, but so, so that was on the basis then, the, the kind of outrage was on the basis of the fact that prostitutes were notoriously um, problematic uh, yeah. individuals for all sorts of reasons, chaotic, um, chaotic lifestyle, very inclined to make malicious complaints or yeah, gen- yeah. generally sexual assault or something along those lines. Yeah. And on that basis, should be avoided by those who are very young in service and only dealt with by people who are really experienced. Was that, is that kind of it? Of course, as a young probationer, I wasn't aware of those those dangers and those risks and, and didn't understand why I shouldn't make a simple arrest, provided I knew what the evidence was. Um, but I learned and I didn't I didn't arrest another prostitute for another 18 months until I finished my probation. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, um so yeah, it's I mean it's a long going back to 1978. Bloody hell! I mean everything's changed like so much, so much. So let's fast forward a little bit into the things you did as you went along. So did you stay predominantly in sort of uniform roles, or did you go into no, my, invest, my, investigations? My, my determination was I was going to get in the CID. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I you know had a lot of crime arrests as a, as a as a uniform PC. Uh, managed to get myself on the uniform crime squad which was based at Kentish Town. Um, my DS was Nos Roberts, uh, interestingly. Norwell Roberts. Norwell right? Roberts, yeah, first black officer yeah, yeah. in the history of the he Met, was, wasn't he? Yeah, one of the first things he demonstrated to me was was how he could destroy my handcuffs. <clears throat> <laughs> so he, he challenged me to put my handcuffs on him and then poof, just broke them. Really? Massive really? strength. Massive strength. Really? Capacity to put away rum like I've never seen before <laughs> since. Um, but he, he, oh, what a character! And what a yeah, man to learn he's a, from. He's a legend, wasn't he? Absolutely, and what? A, oh, he, and he was great. I learned so much from him. Um, did he? Did you ever see him get any shit because he was black? I mean, I don't suppose he would no, have tol- tolerated absolutely it. Not. Absolutely not. And he had he had skin as thick as a rhino as well. Really? Um, and he was absolutely. I mean, the prisoners would give him would give him stick. Yeah. But you know, I mean. Let's see. I, I, I listen to some of this stuff that goes on in the press at the moment about you know, attitudes and things like that to, to, towards um, black black officers and those. God, it didn't. It made no difference to us. Absolutely yeah. none yeah. at all. Yeah. But the, uh, the thing fact, is, Matt, they don't want to. They don't want to hear it. That, yeah, if, if one of our colleagues who happened to be black got that kind of um, treatment from people, it was and it was generally from outside the service. We yeah. would band round them. Yeah, because, yeah, because they were one of us. They were one of people. They were one of the. Well, it's become it's become such a it's become such a toxic subject that 
anyone if you say that now or if i say that now if i you know you just get shouted down don't you and just like yeah. well hold on and, and generally shouted down by people who've either never who've never been in the police and uh and, and, and i've got i just base their opinions purely on what they've read um you know in some dis- generally quite disgruntled individual who's got an axe to grind and and the, the reality is and i you know i've seen this myself that um you know all the black black officers i'm not saying it doesn't happen i'm not saying it doesn't happen you know because i'm not saying when someone says that they were treated badly uh, i did hear a terrible story the other day about a a black officer who uh he was being interviewed on radio four and uh and he was saying that you know he'd gone along with a lot of the sort of banter in inverted commas over the years and he realized that by going along with the banter it was just it was you know it wasn't been true to himself and he showed a photograph of how they had put white shoe uh, whitener on his face at training school um and they had a photograph of him with a sort of laughing colleagues and everything and that's a, you look at it and you go well, that's that's appalling it's appalling you know um so i'm not saying it doesn't happen but i've got to say i never saw it and no, and, 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 and you know and I interviewed, you know, Keith Fraser very, way early in the um, podcast, and Keith's now the um, oh god, I'm get this wrong now. Uh, the youth, the youth justice commissioner. Oh god, Keith, oh, Keith was one of my PCs. Yeah, yeah. So this young black lad from Birmingham, yeah. you know, come down, and he went to Dagenham, my god, of all places, which is like the heart of kind of white sort of skinhead territory, and he said he never got any shit from either his colleagues or for that matter really the public um so i don't know it's it's one of those subjects that's just become so you know divisive and it's like when when you say that this stuff when you never saw it it, you know it it sounds people accuse you of of kind of you know being willfully blind to what was going on and i i think it's just uh i think it's i think it's nonsense so anyway sorry i took us off on a little bit of a tangent there but um, with Noel Roberts, yeah, who who was who was mm. much much loved, much loved, wasn't he? So um, he, he was he was my dear. So I was doing well on the crime squad. I passed my CID board to become a, a DC. Um, but things went wrong mm. <laughs> because uh, one one night duty, um, one of one of the um, the DSs um, decided that we were going to. Um, go and do the Beaujolais run um, <laughs> to to uh, get some supplies for the CID Christmas do. Beaujolais run meaning uh, the ferry to France. Ferry to France. Um, so <laughs> this idea do. was that he and I were going to take the night duty CID car <laughs> and go to um, France, pick up the, a load of booze and bring it back. And of course, me as the, the the youngest sprog on the on the squad, it was oh okay, you know, I can't remember. Sergeant's name now, but anyway. So anyway, I went along with him, and um, we we drove all the way to um, France. We, we picked up the booze. We came back. It was uh, on night duty, was it? It was on a night duty. Yeah, there were no calls, so it's night duty CRD. We weren't required to do anything, so we got away with it. Um, what I didn't realise, because unfortunately, on the way back. Um, the sergeant I was with had decided that he was going to sample a couple of the um, <laughs> things that we bought, so he asked me to drive. Oh, now, he, I was a no, I was not an authorised police driver. <laughs> it gets worse and worse. It does. So um, 
we when we returned, uh, we parked up, unloaded all the stuff, put it in the CRD office, ready for the Christmas do and everything. Um, I came into work th that afternoon um, to discover that the night duty duty officer, the inspector, had seen us driving into the yard with me at the at the driving seat, and he was curious as to how somebody who wasn't a police driver was driving the CID GP car. Oh, God. Then, of course, it transposed... He didn't have a berry on and a string of onions around your neck. I mean, wearing a mask to mask my identity, so he didn't know who it was. Anyway, with the benefit of... But anyway, the, the shit hit the fan. I ended up getting bounced off the crime squad. Um, the the, D, the DS got, got away with it, effectively, although he got a rap on the knuckles from the DCI. I was um, bounced off the crime squad. Do you want to know who the DCI was? Oh, God. John Stevens. <laughs> You know what? I was going to guess John Stevens, actually. Yep. John Captain, Stevens. Captain Beaujolais, wasn't he? Couldn't have been nice about it. Couldn't have been nicer about it, but I was out. So, <laughs> the so I was back in the uniform. Of so um, I was back on the on relief. Um, what the hell am I going to do now? Um, I applied for traffic. Oh, <laughs> God. I Because <laughs> you demonstrated, clearly demonstrated your driving abilities. So yeah. effectively. So I thought, well, yeah, so I applied for it. Anyway, I got in, you know, just because nothing about the, the driving, nothing was put on my record, you see. Oh, God, can you imagine? So, I mean, that I mean, that was instantly instant sacking now, wouldn't it? Would it be, you know? yeah, yeah, but, uh, and this is the thing, isn't it? Anyway, I could, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole and all of that one because I'd, I'd be there all day, but uh, yeah. But um, so anyway, you went to traffic. God, that's a bit of a, yeah, a, bit of a de departure. Went up to Chadwell Heath, TDJ, where I did my all my advanced courses, kind of class one. Mm -hmm. um, and then they opened a new traffic unit at um, Euston, TDE, I think it was called in those days. I think it became TDC. Yeah. Um, and um, I was sent there. And as an advanced driver, um, I was one of not many advanced drivers who were, who were posted there. So I used to drive the, the central London traffic car, which was right. off either Oscar Charlie 15 or Oscar Echo 15. And it was um, the 17th of April 1984 when I was driving Oscar Echo 15. We so, uh, so, for the petrol, so for the petrol heads out there, so what were you driving? Rover SD1s? And it was a Rover SD1, 3.5, yeah, the 3.5, yeah, which was the more powerful one that the, the traffic cars were given. Now, our job, in, well, our job in those days was to do ambulance escorts. Right. Um, and I was sent to St James's Square to do an ambulance escort to take an ambulance from the square to um, the Westminster Hospital on the hurry up. Mm. No more details than that. When we got down there, central London was, was absolutely snarled up. Terrible, terrible. What was going on? We haven't got a clue what was going on that morning. Um, I've, I picked up the ambulance in Regent Street. Um, and with my operator, we, we eventually managed to get it to the Westminster Hospital. Hmm. Then later on in the day, rumours began to circulate that a WPC <clears throat> had been shot. Um, then we heard that the WPC had died. Hmm. Uh, no idea who it was. Um, I, I finished work that afternoon, went home to my home out in Essex, um, which we, my ex-wife and I had not long bought. Um, we were sat on tea chests. You remember the old wooden tea chests? Yeah, yeah. We said we'd made yeah. some tea chests into a settee and some other tea chests mm -hmm. in a coffee table, and we we're using a tea chest as a, a, a as a TV stand. This and is years years before the notion of shabby chic. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Um, and um, the news came on, six o'clock news, and Yvonne Fletcher, uh, a picture came on the news. Now, you could have cut the atmosphere in our house with a knife that, that moment because Yvonne was a, a good friend of my, my ex-wife. Uh, and she'd been oh, at our yeah. housewarming party um, a few weeks prior to that day. Oh dear! Um, now, I know I had no idea that the ambulance escort I'd done had been my friend in, in the back of that ambulance. Really? Only, and that was the moment I found out. Well, they probably deliberately didn't didn't say that because they would have known, you know. Yeah, within, have been able think, to concentrate on your job, probably. Yeah, within C District, they 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 knew the identity of, of who, who it had circulated, mm. and rumours were circulating. But those rumours, you know, out on the street, mm. with only the main set as communication, I hadn't heard. When I got back to the carriage to book off duty, um, no name was 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 mentioned. I went off home. Mm. Um, I don't recall what my, my wife had been doing that day, but she was at home as well. Um, and it was it was a, a real a real shock. Um, yeah. So for those listening who don't really understand what that was all about, that was a that was a a uh, a group of Libyan dissidents effectively had taken over the Libyan was it was it no, the they, Libyan they, embassy? No, or? you're confusing it with the Iranian embassy in 1980. This was 1984. 1980 was when the dissidents took over the Iranian embassy. The Libyan right. embassy incident was. Anti-Gaddafi students. Ah, uh, yes. Sorry, were, sorry. Were demonstrating sorry. outside the the Libyan embassy in St James's Square, and there were pro-Gaddafi students on the that's, other side of the road. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And then right. at, at quarter past ten that morning, where there were a line of students behind a barrier in the centre of the square, just like shouting, um, uh, they're, they're voicing their their concerns about the Gaddafi regime. Um, one. In fact, there were two gunmen uh, leaned out of, a f of first floor windows of the bureau and fired Sterling submachine guns on fully automatic at the crowd outside. Um, mm -hmm. Twelve of the demonstrators were hit, and um, Yvonne was hit as well. Yvonne was hit on in the back because she had her back to the embassy at the time. Bullet passed through her, exited her left side, and, and lodged in her left elbow. Um, she was mortally wounded. John. Um, John Murray, Pete Rogers, and Howard Turner were also old friends of mine. Um, were the people that like ran ran to her help to to help her. Mm. Um, John, they carried her around uh, the corners into um, one of the side streets. Ambulance was called. Um, John went with her in the ambulance, um, and that was the ambulance that I picked up in in Regent Street. Uh, wow! I took oh, to the Westminster Hospital and with. No idea that that it was John and Yvonne mm. in the mm. back. Yeah, and there's no John. Interesting. No John. I knew yeah. I knew Yvonne's fiance uh, Mick, but I didn't know John John Murray at that time. Obviously, I've mm. gotten to know him very well since. Um, but I um I didn't know him then. And they all had uh, they're all Libyan diplomats, weren't they? They all had diplomatic yeah, yeah. immunity. Yeah, there was, a, didn't there was they? a big siege. It went on for two weeks, uh, and eventually. Um, the um, well, everybody inside the embassy was allowed to go home, uh, and they were all sent back. And it was all at the time, it was all uh, a complete mystery um, to many of us as to why these people, at least one or two of whom had mm -hmm. fired in, uh, on these people, and one of them had killed a police officer. 
why they were allowed to go when clearly, although some of them were entitled to diplomatic immunity, a lot of them weren't. Right. Um, and why there was no effective communication. Now, I'm sure we can talk about it because I now know the reason. And I now know the reason because I spent the last year and a half at John Murray's behest working uh, on a book right. to tell the, the full story. My, this is my first fic, um, entry into non-fiction. In, right, okay. Uh, writing fiction, you're moving into, into fiction. Me, this, is, this is me moving into non-fiction. Right. So I spent the last 18 months, two years writing and researching um, and talking to a lot of people, uh, talking to politicians, uh, members of the Secret Service, uh, members, former members of the anti-terrorist squad, former detectives who were based on sea districts at the time, people involved, and also talking to some of the Libyans who were in, involved as well, who mm. prepared to talk about it, which it, and the, the story has gradually come out. A lot of information came from the National Archives because it was right. disclosed to the National Archives under the 30-year rule, where they mm -hmm. were cabinet papers and, and memos and documents and records all get um, released uh, and we did quite a few um, freedom of information requests as well to ask and it's been amazingly revealing amazing really? revealing um, I've, I mean I'm I've, sure I'm sure you'd I'm sure there's going to be we want to avoid spoiler alerts for when that book comes out I yeah, suppose the, but, the book's um, going to come out in June right the, uh, the, the working title at the moment is no ordinary day right um, which was a, an, an expression coined by the inspector who was in charge of the serial on that operation, Alex Fish, right. who eventually became a chief superintendent. But Alex Fish, when I interviewed him, he, he said that, you know, I had a feeling this was going to be no ordinary day. Mm. And I thought, what a fantastic title for a book. Mm. No ordinary mm. day. So, and you hinted, you, you hinted in, in our email exchange that um, you'd had some issues and pressure put on you to um from as you described it from the establishment do you want to yeah, elaborate that's, on that's, that that's a separate story from that book um after after publishing three fiction books right um i, I um i thought to myself what, what am i going to write next and i had this idea um uh, because when I was living here in South Wales, I had helped a young lady um, prepare to join the army. And she mm -hmm. had wanted to become a soldier. And she thought she, she would struggle to, to pass the fitness tests and the aptitude tests and that kind of thing. So I, I helped her, coached her, helped her get fit. And she passed and she got in. She, she's going in the Royal Logistics Corps. Mm -hmm. And she was at Deep Cut um, Army Training Base in Surrey at the time of one of the suicides just at mm. the turn of the century where there were those suspicious suicides where recruits had allegedly shot themselves with semi-automatic weapons while they were on guard duty mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of mystery um, and, and stories surrounding those suicides and I thought to myself as a, as a writer there's a story there yeah um, and so I, I spoke to this, this girl and said, you know, what, what happened at the time you were there? She told me a story and I thought, you know, I could work on this. And I was at an event in Cardiff, a veterans charity launch. Um, and I'd, I'd done a little um, interview with um, uh, one of the people from a charity. Um, and I was sat down 
just having a bite to eat, um, and a woman came and sat next to me, uh, and she turned out to be a, a reader of the books. Um, she'd read my book, she'd liked them. She asked me what I was working on next, and I said to her that I'm thinking of writing this uh, a fictional story based on what happened at Deep Cut. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, well, that's very interesting. You should say that, she said, because I was um, a captain at Deep Cut right. in the Royal Logistics Corps, she said, and boy, can I tell you some stories. Really? Uh, so I thought, well, what a fantastic opportunity. So um, I started meeting with her and, and picking her brain, and she told me the most harrowing stories. I mean, to cut a very long story short, this, this poor woman had been raped in her officer's quarters by an NCO, um, and the, the army had really not done a very good job at investing her investigating her as had happened with many of the recruits where the, the police and the Royal Military Police had really not done a terribly good job mm. um, at investigating those suicides and that this was really not the police's finest hour mm. um, so I thought you know I really have got the, the so that's sorry, beginnings of a sorry story police, was it? Uh, a few, few months later I was um, at a slave trafficking event in Leeds because I'd invite, been invited to, to do an interview there because my second book was about sex and slave trafficking. While After I'd done my interview, I sat down um, in the audience and I sat down next to a chap and we had a similar conversation where he asked me what I was working on next. And I, again, I told him about this deep cut book. Turned out his name was Paul Kenyon and Paul Kenyon was the producer of um, the BBC expose, the BBC documentary that did the expose into the, um, the deaths at um, Deep Cut. The, the, the documentary was called Bullied to Death. Mm. Paul, Paul was the producer. Um, and he said, you know, do you want to talk? Uh, he put me in touch with a girl called Jane McSorley, who was mm. the executive producer of that program. Uh, they put me in touch with lots of other victims, people who hadn't been prepared to talk to the inquest, who hadn't been prepared to talk to the inquiry, but were willing to talk off the record and tell their stories. Mm. Uh, and I, I got in touch with loads of them and I heard some of the most harrowing stories. I felt a burden of responsibility to tell those stories mm. in, a, in a, an authentic and an honest way um, and eventually the 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 story grew and it and it became a book and I thought this is a, this is a good book I'm really proud of it by this time I'd moved literary agents with a different agent I sent the book off to her she loved the book she said yep yeah, we won't get any problem getting this published and I sent it out to a couple of people to um, which I thought ambitiously, I'm going to ask because it's a, a, a book set on a military base. Yeah. Um, Johnny Mercer, the Veterans Minister, gave me an mm. endorsement for it. Damien Lewis, the chap who's written the recent SAS book, he he gave me a, and and my old friend Lord Stevens, Sir John Stevens, he gave me. So I thought with these endorsements, with this topic, this is this is a story which the publisher is going to love. My agent pitched it to the publishers, and yes, we got a lot of interest. We mm. got an offer. Everything was looking very promising. Then everything went quiet. Didn't know what was going on. No mm. responses to emails, no cash coming through, no contracts coming through. Didn't know what was going on. The, the publisher, who, who were the first interested, said, no, sorry, we've changed our mind. We don't want it anymore. Oh, okay, that's very odd. 
So, um, so by this time, we'd said to other publishers, sorry, you know, you've lost the opportunity. We've, we've got a deal on this. So my agent then was faced in a bit of an awkward, embarrassing situation of having to go back to try on some of these agents and say, well, actually, no, the original publisher doesn't want it anymore. Um, do you want to have a second look at it? And to go out to some new publishers. And they all turned it down. Um, and there was one particular publisher, again, that we were, were look, things were looking very promising with. They said yes, the commissioner said yes. Um, and then again, they withdrew. And I, I couldn't work out what was going on. Mm. Um, and I got in touch because we'd had a lot of Zoom meetings with this particular editor discussing the content of the book, discussing editing it. We'd done a lot of work on it with him. Um, and I said, you know, what's going on? And he said, look, I, he said, I can't say anything he said I will write to you hmm. um, and he wrote me a personal letter to my home address he wouldn't even commit this to an email where he explained that I'd been the subject of, of um, a provisional slap notice slap like is section called, D notice, is that a D it's, notice? It's sort of that kind of thing it's called strategic litigation against publication um, and it's where should we call it the establishment um, sees a book and thinks to themselves, we don't want that that story coming out there. I suppose the question for me would be, how would they know that that book was even a thing uh, unless someone had actually mm. taken it to someone from the Ministry of Defence or whatever? I mean, did you actually say, did you go to the Ministry of Defence and say, right, I'm going to do this book? Have you any objections? Because I'm just curious as to how that could have... The only, I suppose the only thing you can infer then is that uh, someone from the publishing house has gone to someone yeah. at, at government I level. So. I, I would think that because of the subject matter, somebody within the public house, probably from the commercial side of it, has said, well, we better just check the content of this. Mm. We don't want to run foul of a situation where we plow a lot of money into it and then somebody... And I can't say it was the Ministry of Defence because I don't actually know who, who, who it was. Mm. Um, but somebody like that has said to them, we'd rather you didn't publish it. And if you did, we might need to to um, uh, try and put a block on it. Now, that's going to involve the publisher in a lot of expense, legal costs, defending that that and, and defending their right to publish it. That's going to cost them a lot of money. They look at you as an author and say, OK, you as an author, how many copies are we going to sell? What are we going to make on this? And they make a pragmatic commercial decision and say it's not worth that money if i'd been patricia cornwell or ian rankin or somebody like that they would probably say do you know we're going to sell that many copies of this that it's worth the litigation costs mm. for matt johnson no he's not he's not in that major league mm. not worth it cost so they said sorry it's not going to happen so then i was faced with the situation of, of, of no publisher so um, I went back to my agent. I said, what do, you, what do you think I should do? And she said, go back to what you first did. Publish it yourself using the mm -hmm. KTP system. So, so that's what I did in September. Came out so, in, so it's coming out in September. That's it, came, crow, it came out in September, just gone, but six right. weeks ago. Crow 27. Crow 27, it's called. Yeah, Crow stands for Combat Recruit of War. It's what young recruits in the army are called. So it's the story about the suicide of um, a crow whilst undergoing her training. Um, and four young women soldiers who want justice and who are begin a fight for justice, but they they find themselves um, not in a fight for justice, but in a battle for survival. It's a crime thriller. 
set on a military base. And, it, and, and what happens is um, our veteran cop comes along to investigate something totally unrelated to the, to the, the suicide. Um, and while he's there, these women realize that he is an opportunity for them to tell their story and to mm. get justice for their friend. Yeah, um, I'm sort of struggling with this whole idea. I mean, did you kind of it, kind of pursue that? Say, okay, if if someone somewhere has got an objection to this, then um, we don't live in a totalitarian state. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's, um, you know, you can articulate what your concerns are, um, and then we can, um, you know, come to some sort of mutual understanding. But you know, it just seems really odd that in 2022 um, we should be playing guessing games as to whether something should or shouldn't be allowed to be published. Yeah. Um, it's if you if you Google SLAPP slap notices or SLAP 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 notices, you you will be surprised uh, at how much of a furore is going on at the moment. There is legislation potentially going through Parliament at this very moment, which is being um, supported by the Society of Authors because there is a surprising um, amount of literature that is being the subject of, of, of this kind of, and it's not just litigation, it's, it's also like um, commercial pragmatism on the part of, of um, publishers who are saying quite, quite simply, as, as I described a few moments ago, um, the cost of, of defending this, exceeds the cost of but, it, but i suppose the point i make is like def defending it against who you know someone has to put their head above the parapet and say i am so and so yeah. and i represent this particular part of um her majesty's government or sorry his majesty's yeah. government and and uh, we're, we're not going to tell you why we because that's subject to confidentiality blah, 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 a bit like an nda i suppose yeah uh, some sort of confidentiality agreement but someone somewhere has to um, justify having made that if if indeed that that is even a thing or whether I mean is there is it a, is it possible that your publisher just bottled it and yes. then they, oh, yeah. and, they, and then they used that as a spurious justification for bottling it? Yes, yes, that that is possible. Um, I, I I don't the the creative artistic side of the publisher, the commissioning editor, the people that read and like the book, they didn't bottle it. The the accountants did. Right. The money side of the people who look at it and say, you know, in terms of pure commercial viability, does 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 signing this book and paying for this book make make sense? The answer is no. Mm. Uh, and they hold final sway. The commissioning editor might want the book. Mm. The, the 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 money people say you're not having it. And one one of the other arguments. I don't know that this is the case, and I hope I don't speak out of turn. But in practical terms. I, it was also suggested to me that what, what happens is these guys have, these publishers have very popular uh, ex-military authors on their books, mm. most of whose work has to be run past the Ministry of Defence before it's approved for publication. Yeah. If they start rocking the boat, it could be that the, the, the Ministry might say, well, we're, we're not going to, no, we'll say no to that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, they make life difficult, and so they so they have a, a cosy working relationship with mm. people within the Ministry of Defence, um, which which works um, both ways. 
Um, and unfortunately, there's probably certain subjects like mine mm. <laughs> where they say, uh, sorry, you know, that, that's one that we can't agree to. Yeah, well, I, I genuinely hope that that book gains a wide readership. And um, and if there are issues within it, albeit that they are being played out as a work of fiction, then that that sort of generates uh, some sort of debate or, um, I hope so you, know, too. I, you know, this is the whole thing, isn't it? We live in a, well, say we live in a democracy. It doesn't feel like a democracy sometimes for the last few years, does it? It feels like we're living in a, um, a borderline, bloody corrupt um, political system. But, um, you know, the reality is that we do live in a democracy and we've got uh, every part of government is accountable to the courts and to the taxpayers. So, so yeah, so we sh I shall watch with interest to see what, uh, see what happens, you know. Mm. It's been, but, so, it's, it's gone off to a slow start, but it's, it's gradually starting to gain some traction now, which is, which is nice. Yeah, no, good. Um, but and I, I agree. I mean, there is some of the, some of the publishers said, well, it's this, this, this isn't a contemporary problem, is it? But I think as we've 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 seen in the the papers recently with the um, officers in the submarine service and the Royal Navy and, and women officers who've been the subject of kind of sexual harassment and, and unpleasant experiences, it, it it still is a very contemporary issue. If yeah, it wasn't definitely. a contemporary issue, um, organisations like the Centre for Military Justice wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, the, the CMJ is is is, a, is an organisation that was started um, by the father of of one of the dig cut victims, Cheryl James. Mm. Chapter Des James got got together with a, a a lawyer from Liberty, and she she and he formed the Centre for Military Justice. And the Centre for Military Justice support young women, women young women, who mm. have had illegal, unpleasant, harrowing experiences at the hands of other other soldiers and want done something done about it yeah. um and at the moment the, the, the military is it is trying to address the problem but it's it's not quite getting there hmm. um and yeah. there, there is a an attitude i think amongst a, a lot of, of in the officer class particularly to say yeah. that oh, don't don't worry this is all this is all being addressed this is all being sorted yeah. we've got systems well, in place now to deal with this but it's not working I mean, I I, t I tend uh, I tend not to kind of plug other people's podcasts. You know, why would I? But uh, there is there is one that uh, I do listen to because I was interviewed on it myself, and it's it is interesting. It's it's mainly military stuff, but there's an interview here, uh, which is it's, so the the podcast is H hour, as in letter H hour, um, and um, there's an interview which is episode 185 and an interviews with Hannah Shergold she's a ex um British army pilot uh and uh flew in Afghanistan and Iraq I believe and and she's not an artist she left the army she's now a very very successful artist and if you listen to that she describes a very very unpleasant toxic culture uh towards women and that's all I'll say. And that 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 is exactly what I write about. Um, and although it's it, people will read it and be entertained by it, um, hopefully enjoy it for the experience of of, of, of writing a, a um, like a, a, an exciting fictional story. Mm. I, I'm pretty confident that people will read between the lines and, and they'll know 
that actually you know some of the the situations I describe are very real and they are yeah. very real because yeah. a lot of a lot of the material that's in Crow 27 is based on on the the genuine accounts of people who have had those experiences yeah 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 the it's resolution really, the, the it's really, yeah. what he's able to bring to them of course is is fictional um it's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean, certainly, uh, I when I wrote my book, I was very mindful of the fact that I'm not going to put myself on offer, um, you know, to uh, on on things like the Official Secrets Act or anything like that. Anything that's going to drop me in the shit, um, I avoided very, very much, and I, I sort of skirted around a lot of issues. Like I said I'm not going to talk about national security policing um, in terms of specific operations, other than those that are in the public domain, um, but. You know, fiction, I suppose, is a way of bringing a bit more authenticity to bear um, by talking about things in a very sort of hypothetical, mm. fictional yeah. way. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but even, but even then, as you say, you know, you've got to tread really carefully, haven't you? And often, yeah. as there have been a few, a few, particularly in the military realm, there've been a few people who've dropped in the shit, haven't they? By yeah disclosing sensitive tactics and yes yeah you, you do you do have to be careful um i mean just to give you a, a simple example when when i'd finished the manuscript i sent the manuscript to every single contributor every young recruit former nco that and said can you read through this and can you identify any particular character either by name or role who you know to be a real person and mm. um, none could mm. So, which which was a relief because I had to be very careful never to use a name mm. actually associated with Deep Cut. So, all the names of the characters, no such name ever ever featured during any of the Deep Cut inquiries. None of the roles, none of the places, none of the descriptions, or anything like that have any any similarity with Deep Cut whatsoever. So, nobody who was actually Deep Cut can say, can look at the book and say, "That's me you're talking about." Mm. No, it's not the case. Mm. Um, the story is completely fictional. Um, yeah. a scenario I yes i do remember i do you know it was a long time ago but i do remember that those investigations and and i remember even thinking at the time that's got to be a right can of worms mm. to, to try and unpick what the hell was going on there because you've got this kind of closed community haven't you uh but living within the you know a civilian environment you've got a military establishment fit surrounded by a civilian environment where things are going on that will not be showing you know even at best it's not going to be showing the military in a particularly good light is it uh, and, and it, uh, it, it, it didn't show us as a civil police in a good light as well i mean just as, as a classic case in point when when these young people um died of of, of bullet wounds it's a suspicious death. We know, as 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 as, as former police officers, that if a, a death like that happens, it's got to be investigated properly. Scene has got to be sealed off, uh, and it's got to be forensic people called in. There's got there's, there's got to, it's got to got to be done forensically correctly as well as procedurally correctly. Um, in the case of these these four deaths that happened there. The Royal Military Police thought the civil police were investigating. The civil police thought the Royal Military Police were investigating. So neither of them attended. Um, so the army, the soldiers on the ground, were thinking, well, we've got this body here. <laughs> the RMP doesn't seem to be interested. The civil police aren't, aren't coming. 
what are we going to do with it? You know, oh, we, so so of course they, they actually did what, what they thought was right. Hmm. Um, and then afterwards, somebody said to sort of like within the, the detective branches, are we investigating that that death or not? The one that's in the papers. And the Royal Military says, no, no, the civil police are investigating that. And the senior officers within Surrey Police said, no, the Royal Military Police are investigating that. And then somebody eventually twigged, hang on a minute, you know, nobody seems to be investigating this. Hmm. By then, Meanwhile, the forensics, the forensics screwed, were they? lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were gone. The, the opportunity had, had, had blown completely. Very sad. And so isn't the, it? The, the detectives who then came in to investigate, their hands were tied because mm. they, their evidence was so limited. Mm. All they could do was interview people and get their stories to try and piece things together. Um, and inevitably, they, they, if there was foul play, they were yeah. never going to prove. Yeah. Well, you know, well done you for um, turning some of these stones over and hopefully, albeit it's fiction, but it, it will it will give a voice maybe to people who felt they didn't have a voice. And um, equally with the Yvonne Fletcher uh, book, uh, just remind us what the name of that book is again. Uh, the working title is No Ordinary Day. No Ordinary uh, Day. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it's coming out in June. In June, right. Okay, so keep a lookout for that. So brilliant. Listen, my friend. I think we've we've been going for about an hour and a quarter. So I do get some I do get some feedback saying hey, you, you, your podcast's too long. Keep them a bit short because <laughs> I've gone for like two, that's two a, and a half, three hours a, sometimes. That's, you a, know? that's a nature ex cops when we get talking here. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stop. I know, I know. But listen, you know, thanks ever so much um, for your Real time, pleasure. Matt. And you know, I wish you the very best with the the new books. And um, yeah, I shall definitely. Take your advice, actually, and just start writing stuff. And it's going to be, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be messy. Uh, it's going to probably be crap initially. But, but as, I, as I said to Johnian, you've demonstrated through through the quality of your mm. nonfiction book that you can write. Mm. That's that's the key. You can write. You can write. Um, yeah yeah so the question is can we can you yeah. write creatively <laughs> exactly yeah oh god well i'll probably be dropping you a few emails saying Matt, no i'm stuck you know <laughs> no what problem. shall i do <laughs> but uh, listen my friend thanks a million i'll let you get back to frosty um frosty uh south wales and uh yeah and we'll catch up and uh hopefully i can always say this but we'll have a beer we'll definitely have a beer sometime yeah, let's do that because uh yeah, that would be great. Excellent. All right, All right my friend. Listen, Bye. you take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. 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 Once we had a policeman. He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No do we feel that we're the safest street in town? Oh. <laughs> <laughs>